<laughs> well, I hope you had a Merry Christmas. And uh, the title of our sermon today is The Significance of God's Covenant with Noah. But before I get into that, I want to pray and ask that God would be with us through the power of His Holy Spirit, that we would understand His Word, and that this time would be a time of worship. Would you pray with me? Father, as your people, we have confessed that indeed we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came and Christmas represents the time of his coming, but that he will come again. And in the meantime, Father, you have given us your written word, and we believe that it is holy, infallible, authoritative. And so, Father, we seek to learn from your words to us what it is you would have us to know. By the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray now, as I seek to teach, you would give me clarity of thought and speech. I pray that your spirit would be present with your people and with me. And I pray that you would forgive me. I am a sinner in need of your grace. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> well, as a, uh, as a young boy, I remember going to Swainsboro, Georgia. Many of you have probably never heard of that, but it's near Claxton, Georgia, which is the fruitcake capital of the world. And that's a big deal. Not really. <clears throat> um, my grandfather, Clint, whom I'm obviously named after, had retired from the Air Force, and he was working with the Georgia Department of Transportation. And uh, he explained to me one day, as I was asking him questions about what he did, that uh, when they go to build a road, they purchase different parts of the land along the way. And I was asking him, so why would you purchase farmland in a place like Dublin, Georgia? And he said, well, we are trying to build a road from Atlanta to Savannah, and we need that particular part of that person's farm to build that road. You see, where you determine the road to end is how you determine which land you will purchase to build that road. You would not move a single piece of equipment, make any land acquisitions, begin to grade one inch of soil before deciding where the road was going to go. It only makes sense. God is no different than the Georgia Department of Transportation. He begins with the end in mind. The future, you could say, determines the past. The future determines the past. And this is especially true when we're talking about God. There are no random decisions or actions. Think about that for a moment. In this world... God is not making any 
random decisions are actions. It doesn't feel that way to me. Things feel very random to me at times, especially in the case of what we've been talking about with Noah and the flood, natural disasters, the tsunami that hit in 2005 or 2004, the earthquake that killed 250,000 people in Haiti in 2010, it can appear on the surface that things are not happening with order, they're with disorder. But I'm saying, and the scriptures are teaching, that that is not true. There are no random decisions or actions in the world. God is not like man that he would lose his temper and act out in fury. The scriptures say that God is slow to anger and he is long-suffering. This is why understanding God's promise would be another word for covenant. God's covenant with Noah is important because this covenant made all the way back here in time has a end all the way over here. And I'm going to show you, we're going to be in Genesis at the beginning, but we're going to end up today in Revelation because that's where the highway that God is building ends up. And the covenant that he makes with Noah is significant because the journey and the place that God intends to take it to. One of the basic doctrines of Christianity is that History is God's highway to an appointed future. Things aren't just happening randomly, even though the deist would say, much like a clock, God set the universe in action, backed off, and the clock just does what it does. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. God himself is the state highway commissioner, and he's the chief engineer, and he's the head foreman of history. History is not a random path cut out by random people. It's a highway that leads from creation, and some theologians call it, to consummation. From creation to completion. Engineered by God alone, who directs it from his sovereign position and his all-knowing standpoint in the future. History is going somewhere. God appointed the end before the foundations of the world. Follow me on that. Before God created the world, the stars, and all that we know, he had an end in mind. The Noahic covenant, which is short for the covenant that God made to Noah, the Noahic covenant is God tipping his hand to what is in the future. And so, history is going somewhere, and even though the really hard stuff like the flood that we see in Genesis 7 and 8, or tsunamis, or earthquakes, or if you have a personal tsunami, like you go to the doctor and you get the diagnosis that there is cancer, that would be a personal tsunami. Or maybe the relationship that you dreamed of when you were a child all through your life, finally in your 30s, 
ends in a nasty divorce, that's a personal tsunami. I promise you, if you are God's child, He is still in control, and He is sovereign, though it does not feel that way. Matter of fact, the prophet Isaiah, 40, in uh, Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, this is what he says about God. In Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. In other words, my decisions will stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. God's counsel will stand, and his purposes will be accomplished. God is working in the world throughout history to accomplish his purposes. So what is he up to with this covenant that he makes with Noah, and how does that fit into his master plan? How does, and we talked about this in earlier, how does the flood and the death of approximately 750 million people fit into what God is doing in creation? What is the covenant God makes with Noah? Look with me at your Bibles at Genesis 8, 21 through 22. Cameron, there may be a slide for that. Yeah. <clears throat> and this is what it says. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's an interesting text. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, night and day, shall not cease. So this is what God is promising in a covenant to Noah. Like the covenant that he made to Adam, the Noahic covenant is laid out here in our text, is a covenant not just made to one person, and this is important to understand, but this covenant is made to all of humanity. And it makes a new beginning for the world after the flood. But this new beginning isn't like Adam and Eve's new beginning. In Adam and Eve's new beginning, there was not sin until they sinned and then sin entered the world. The new beginning with Noah already has sin. It says in the text that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And that doesn't change. When we get into next week's text you'll see immediately the great patriarch Noah actually sins against God through his drunkenness and nakedness, and then we'll talk more about that next week. God's promise is never again to use a flood to destroy the earth. The Lord's promise that the seasons will, will be 
kept and will cycle seasons after seasons. The Noahic covenant is God's pledge that he'll preserve the stability of nature and allow his people to flourish until the appropriate time in the future that we're going to get to in a moment. Moreover, our creature's love for all that he has made is seen in the pledge, he will not destroy the world again, which is also an early sign that all creation will one day be renewed. Our world, this world, tempts us to believe that the cycle of seasons and the rising and the setting of the sun every day Peggy and I on our back porch in the evenings have a place where we can go and see the sun set and the sky will turn brilliant orange and we'll sit and talk and watch the sun set it's easy to conclude when you factor out Christ and God that the seasons are rising and setting of the sun is entirely just the orbit of the planets, the tilting on the axis, and its, revolu and its you know, revolution around the same axis. And you could conclude and, and deduct that there's nothing really powerful or supernatural happening here. But the truth is, God himself, who works through these means, is keeping his promise not just to Noah, but to us. And every change of season and every sunrise and sunset is proof positive that the Lord is not going to break his promise. Now, look with me at Genesis 9, 1 through 6. And I'll tell you up front, this is an interesting side note about this text, is God's going to deal with capital punishment in this text? If you ever wonder, what does God think about capital punishment? And he's going to deal with vegetarian. Are you a vegetarian? If you are, that's perfectly fine. But you can see in this text that God says it's okay to not be. Because up to this point, everybody had been. We'll see it in the text. Read with me. Genesis 9, 1 through 6. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Sounds just like what God had told them at Adam and Eve, and it is very much the same. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. You see what God's saying is now... I'm going to give you the animals and the fish and everything that creeps as something that you can hunt and eat, and they will fear you. And he says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, which was not true before. And as I have, as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. There's something very special about the blood. It is Christ's blood shed for us that saves us. And it is the text that says there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Blood is the source of life. 
says, but you shall not eat flesh with its lifeblood and for your lifeblood, I'll require a reckoning. Listen to this. From every beast, I'll require it and from man. For his fellow man, I'll require a reckoning for the life of man. This is where I was talking about capital punishment. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his image. And so God is saying, human life is precious. And those that would take another human life, their life should be taken. That is the Old Testament perspective found here in the text. So God in this text is now um, providing protection from man. Remember, the whole world's been wiped out. God is saying, I'm going to protect you in three different ways. I'm going to protect you in that I'm going to give animals over to you. You're going to have authority and permission to kill, to hunt, and to eat them. So he's going to protect them from the animals. And then he says, and I'm going to protect you from each other, man with man. If a man kills a man, then it is right and just that that man loses his life. So capital punishment. And then he says... In three different ways, he's going to protect them. I'm going to protect you from my wrath. I'm no longer going to wipe out the world with a flood. I'm going to protect you from animals. I'm going to protect you from men. And I'm going to protect you from my own wrath over sin. And so, with respects to the covenant between God and man in Scripture, listen to this definition, and I think I have a copy of it, Cameron. This is from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. A covenant is not a promise. It is different than a promise. And here's how. A covenant is an unchangeable, so it can't be changed, divinely imposed. And so a covenant, I can't make a covenant like God can make a covenant. Only God can divinely impose a legal agreement. And the legal agreement is between God and man. And it stipulates the conditions of their relationship. So a covenant, there's, he, does, he makes a covenant with Noah. He makes a covenant with Adam. He makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant with David. All of these are God's way of saying, this is how I'm going to relate to you. But the, the issue is, we can only accept the covenant or break the covenant. We don't get to pick well, you know, God, you said you're going to relate to me this way. I kind of don't like that one, so I'm going to do this. No, this is a divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man. The only options we have is to say, yes, I will go along with the covenant, or no, I'll be a covenant breaker. And so, at the heart, though, and this is what I want you to catch, at the heart of all of these covenants is a new covenant that when Christ comes he's going to fulfill these old old testament covenants the way that he's been relating to man there's going to be a new way and in Jeremiah 31:33 is the new way this is God through the prophet Jeremiah saying here's the new way I'm going to relate to you listen what what Jeremiah 31:33 says <clears throat> 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And here it is, and I'm going to try to explain it where you can understand it. I will put my law within them. So up until now, the law has been given by Moses through the Ten Commandments. God's people have the law. But the new covenant is this. I'm going to put my law not just with you, but in you. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now think about what happens in the new covenant. When we get over to the New Testament at Pentecost, what happens, those of you that know your Bibles know, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, comes on His people, and He doesn't just come on them, but He comes to live in them. And He writes His law in their heart. And not only that, but in a moment, I'm going to tell you and show you in the Scripture where it says, He takes the heart that you've been given, a heart of stone when you were born, me too, and He gives us a heart of flesh. And we are able now to follow. We are able now to obey. We begin, you know, the first 20, 21 years of my life, I would read this and I just thought, frankly, the truth is, (laughs) I didn't believe it. I didn't believe this book. And not only that, I certainly didn't understand it. I mean, you got to admit, it's not an easy book to understand. But you know what happened when the new covenant happened for me and God came into my life? I started reading this book and this stuff was jumping off the pages and all of a sudden it started making sense and I was like, I, I, I never knew. I never knew. And it became alive for me. So... Also, in 2 Corinthians 6.16, about the new covenant, it says this. Jesus says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. So God's covenant to Noah was a promise that he would withhold his wrath towards man's sin. And he would bring about a redemption for his people his people will walk with him and be holy as he is holy the new covenant will write on their hearts the law of God you see the issue was before the flood it said their thoughts were evil all the time when God comes and he gives us his spirit it's different from then forward it's a grace upon grace because no one deserves God's favor but in reality every single human being born on the face of the planet deserves God's judgment for their sin and here's the here's one way to think about it Peggy and I had most of y'all wouldn't know this probably but we had five children actually Um, we have three that are still living and we had two especially one that we had to check into the hospital and she had to give birth to a stillborn and you want to talk about gut-wrenching and heartbreaking 
On our Christmas tree right now, Joshua and Caleb hang as a white ornament. They're in a stocking together. It's two little babies. We call them Joshua and Caleb because they went in to spy out the promised land before we get there. And they were both little boys. Here's the thing, and this is how it applies to you. When you were born physically, you were actually born a stillborn child spiritually. Now, physically, of course, you had breath and life, and your, your parents were all excited. But the fact is, the Bible teaches in Ephesians 2.1, when you're born, you're born dead in your trespasses and sins. That's how we all enter the world. We're not, as most would say, and popular psychiatry says, and this is why it's a bunch of hogwash, you're basically good. You just need to find your goodness. Well, the fact of the matter is I had three children that we raised, and every one of them were little sinners. Every one of them. We're not basically good, and you know that if you've ever parented. We are selfish from the beginning, and then we grow up and be selfish adults. And unless God does some hard stuff and grows us up, we'll stay selfish till we die. And so, this is why Nicodemus in John 3, he comes to Jesus, and he wants to be... He wants to have eternal life. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you remember what Jesus says in Nicodemus, to Nicodemus? He says, brother, you got to be born again. And he said, Nicodemus, probably what I would have said. You mean I got to go back into my mother's womb? That sounds kind of ridiculous. And he says, no, the first birth is of water. In other words, a physical birth. And the second birth is spiritual. You must be born again. You must be born spiritually because the first time when you were born of water, you were born a spiritual stillborn. No life in you. And that's why in Ezekiel 36, 26, I said I was going to say, share this verse. This is what Ezekiel said. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh you want to know why people don't believe this the Bible is saying they have a heart of stone that until God gives them a heart of flesh they can't they won't it's foolishness to them and it was to me so, mostly, before we are Christians, we love ourselves. And everything we do is for our own happiness. But the problem is, our flesh, our stillborn nature, the world that we live in, and the enemy that God says he has in the scriptures, a fallen angel named Satan, they all are lying to us throughout our whole life saying if you do this you'll be happy if you do this you'll be happy when in reality if you've lived a little and you've sinned a little maybe you've sinned a lot 
you know the end result of that sin is not real happiness. It's a lie. It's a lie every time. And so, in Christ, in Psalm 16, it says, there are pleasures forevermore. In him there are pleasures forevermore. We must come to God and humbly ask him to give us this new heart of flesh and to take away our heart of stone. And if I'm following my illustration of the highway that God is creating, remember, you start with the end in mind. What is God up to in the world? It feels like all these random things are going on. But what I want you to do is turn with me. We've been in Genesis. Look at this right here real quick. All of this is God pursuing a relationship with man through 66 books. And he's revealing his desire to have a relationship with you. And then when we get to Revelation, the last book in the Bible, chapter 21, I want you to be there with me because I want you to see this is the city that the highway is leading to. This is it. This is what this whole thing is about. And when I say the whole thing, I'm saying your life, my life, and the world. It's really about knowing your Creator. But look how God says it. John has been given this vision. He's here. And at Revelation 21, 1 through 8, this is what happens. Listen with, read along with me. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Some think that heaven is going to be somewhere out there. I think the scriptures teach it's probably going to be here. And it's going to look a lot like this, but without sin, which means it's going to look nothing like this. But I think we're going to work. We're going to laugh. We're going to play. We're going to know each other. We're not just going to be playing a harp and singing worship all day. That sounds like the other place a little bit. It's going to be way more than that. All right, so this is what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So there's this wedding picture. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the, listen to this. This is unbelievable. This is the God of the universe. It says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then, part that most of us love, especially if we've aged and watched others pass, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then it says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are truth, trustworthy and true. And he said to me, me being John, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. 
And I love the wording of this next phrase. He says, to the thirsty, and he's talking about spiritual soul thirst. He says, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. You won't even pay. He's just going to give it. That's grace. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. That's where this city is going. The reason for the Noahic covenant was God saying, you saw my wrath, but I'm going to withhold my wrath, and I'm going to be long-suffering, and I'm going to be patient because I'm going to wait to the fullness of the time, and I'm going to bring all that are mine into this relationship with me, and then I'm going to walk with them and I'm going to be with them just like I was in the garden with Adam and Eve. I'm going to reestablish that, and there will be no more sin in the world. God is securing a future with his people in heaven. And I want to say this. He is absolute truth. We live in a world that doesn't believe in absolute truth. Trust me. He is absolute truth. He is, and growing out of him is everything that is ever that you've ever thought is beautiful. If you've went and looked at a piece of art, or you've watched a sunset or a sunrise, and you thought beauty, it's growing out of him. He is beauty. He is joy. He is fulfillment. He is abundance. He is peace. The only peace there really is. He is laughter. He is purity. He is wholeness. And he's not just wholeness. He's holiness. And in him there is no sin. In his presence is fullness of joy, whether we believe it or not. You see, in the Noah story, we can't fail. We, we must not fail to miss. God is doing a million things in the Noah story, but I'm convinced one of the things he's doing is he's showing mankind, I will be just because I'm holy. I must be just. And what that means is I will bring my wrath to bear. A God that is not holy is not a God worth worshiping. And the reason I say this is because look at what happens after all the great stuff that I read in Revelations 21 in verses 7 and 8. Because you can't read this and say, yes, that's an awesome God, and then throw out, well, I don't believe that. So let's read 21, 7, and 8. In Revelations, it says, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for, and here's the, the transition, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, those who don't believe that Jesus said he is who he said, and they don't believe his word is his word, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and idolaters is just loving something more than God. And all liars, here it is, their portion 
will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So you have heaven in the beginning of it, and you have eternal punishment in a place called hell at the end of it. And if you were here in a previous sermon, once we are glorified and made to be like Christ without sin, we will rejoice in the righteous judgment of God even over sin and hell, which is really hard. But I also want to say this, and I wished in some way, if it wasn't manipulative, that I would begin to just weep right now. And I mean that with all sincerity. Because here's the facts. If you are a Christian, you did nothing. And you have no one to thank but God. And when you read a text like this, sometimes you think, yeah, they should straighten up and get their act together and see what I see and be good like I'm good. And I would say, no, that's not true. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, it is by grace that you have been saved that no one should boast. You have nothing, you have nothing to boast in if you're a Christian. All you have is to look to God and say, all I can bring you is my sin. That's all I have to bring. It is your grace that saves. It is his grace that saves. And so all of us, if you read verse 8, cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, every one of you sitting here and your pastor is that. We are that. That is who you are in your own flesh. And that is who I was and who I am apart from the grace of God. Never, never forget that. It's not us and them. It's us for them. We must take the message of the truth of the gospel to those who don't know it. And we do it with humility. And in the end, God's glory will be revealed through his redeeming. God's covenant will be established. And it will all be for you and for me. No. No. We're fringe benefiters. You know who and why? God is doing everything that he's doing from Genesis to Revelation. Isaiah said it in Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. And this is how he said it. He's doing it for my name's sake. This is God speaking. I defer my anger. In other words, I, I could, I should punish sin, but I defer it. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. What I'm telling you is your life is not even about you. It's not. Ultimately, to be caught up in his life 
is the greatest gift he could ever give you. To be near the greatest being ever. What an incredible privilege. And to walk among him and with him and for him to call you his friend. There's nothing bigger. There's nothing greater. There's nothing more than that. And so I don't have to make a name for myself in this world because I am his. And if you are his, your job is to make much of him. And if we make much of him, even if other people think we're stupid, it'll be glorious to him. Let's pray. Father, you and you alone are worthy of our praise. You are so other than us, so different, we can't even get our heads around your person. But we thank you that your word says you're calling out a people for yourself. And in Revelations 21, we see we will walk with you one day. And what a glorious day that will be. Amen.